and it is a joy to be able to be together. Every time we have the opportunity, we ought not take it for granted. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul lays out some of the glorious um, truths about the local church, some of the glorious characteristics of the local church. He he calls the church and calls attention to the master of the church when he tells us that the church is the house of God, which is the church of the, the living God. He's the master. He's the ruler. He's, he's the one who's over the church. He's the one who is in charge. He calls attention to the mission of the church when he refers to the church as being the pillar and the ground of truth. In other words, the, the church exists for one great purpose, and that is to exalt the truth. That's all we have. We only have the truth. He, he talks about the message of the church when in verse 16 of chapter 3, he, he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. This, this great message that is centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think that's why I love the church. I think that's why you've come to love the church, because of the master of the church, because of the, the mission of the church to exalt the truth, because of the message of the church, which is the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And having said what he says at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 might come to a, uh, be quite a surprise to us. He says at the, uh, at the beginning of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It might be kind of interesting and kind of surprising to hear, having said all of the things that he said about the glorious church and the glorious truth of the church, that he would say right after that that, that there will come a time where people will reject the truth and depart from the faith and actually devote themselves to something else other than the truth of the gospel. We ought to be surprised by that. We ought to be taken back by that. But God indeed is not taken back by that because he's the one who tells us exactly the truth, that there will come a time where people will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And I I ask the question, well, what is needed in a time like this? I mean, for people who really love the local church, as you and I have come to love the local church, which is a way of saying we've come to love each other and, and God and what he has done and is doing in us, what is needed for a people who love the local church, yet who recognize the validity of the truth told to us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1? What is needed? And I'll tell you exactly what is needed. What is needed are good servants of Jesus Christ. That's what we need today. We need good servants of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever I hear that phrase, in fact, when I see that phrase, good servants, I think about the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Would you turn with me just for a moment to Matthew chapter 24? And I want to show you a couple of passages here that speak of this issue of being a good servant of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, here we are in the the Mount Olivet Discourse, really the last 
sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ before his crucifixion, he would say this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 45. And you get this idea here of what we're talking about when we talk about this issue of being a good servant of Jesus Christ. He says this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now, I want you to keep that verse in mind. Just keep that verse in mind. And now go over to chapter 25 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 25. And in this parable of the talents... You remember that the parable of talents that the, a master had given talents to certain servants, these, these talents, the talents are, is, is, is a measure of money. We're not talking about uh, an ability to do something. We're talking about a talent as a measure of money. And uh, he said, well, I go away. I want you to make use of these things. Verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little and I will set you over much. Enter to the joy of the Lord of your master. Verse 23, again, to another one, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been a f- faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So keep those things in mind. Now turn back with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's where I'm going to take my text from this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all of of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It has been my joy over the last nearly 30 years, 28 years to be among so many good servants of Jesus Christ. As I prepared for this week, I, I found myself, once again, as so often happens, just sitting back in my study, sitting back in my chair, and just recalling in my mind the men and women who have so faithfully served the Lord Jesus Christ, and among whom I have, I have been able to, to, to watch them and, and, and to serve together with them, and to how I've been encouraged by your example over these years. I have come, really, I have come to appreciate And I have come to admire you in so many ways. I wish I could just take time to go to you individually and say to you each how I admire you and and appreciate what the Lord is doing in in you and, and through you. Now, that's not to say we're perfect. We all know that. We're not perfect. This is not the perfect church. If you're here for the first day, for the first time, welcome to the imperfect church. That's us. We all know that. But what I've appreciated so much is how God has worked in you and through you. And I can say, I believe that we are living, we are, are, are sitting among good servants of Jesus Christ this morning. And while the Apostle Paul directs his words specifically to Timothy in his ministry 
as a pastor, as an elder in the church at Ephesus, there are some things that we can take away from this passage that will help to identify exactly the characteristics of a good servant of Jesus Christ to help us in in sort of putting the target out there. So we know what we're aiming at because what we need in this day are good servants of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a good servant of Jesus Christ? Well, this morning, I want to show you in this text that there are five features of a good servant of Jesus Christ. Five features of a good servant of Jesus Christ. First of all, a good servant of Jesus Christ is, in fact, a servant of Jesus Christ. In other words, let me say it this way. A servant of Jesus Christ is really a steward of Jesus Christ. Those passages back in the book of Matthew, I didn't help have us just turn there just to, so that we could you know, fill time. I wanted you to see those passages because in those passages of Scripture, we get the idea that a servant is one who is charged by a master, who is given a certain amount of property, a certain responsibility by his master, a certain charge is given to this steward. And he says, take care of this while I'm gone. The first thing that comes to mind that Paul uses here is this this word of being a good servant. We might expect that the word servant would be the word that's typically translated or ought to be translated as slave. But that's not this word. The word that's used here is the word diakonos. And it speaks of a house slave. It speaks of a house servant. It speaks of a bond servant, one who is thought of as being a steward of a household. One who serves the master of a household and is given the charge of caring for the household's members and the household's possession. If you and I are to be good servants of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that fundamentally we have been given a charge and that charge is to be a steward of Jesus Christ. Whatever has been given to you, this, we're talking about a steward is someone who is over an entrustment of someone else's property. And those parables back in Matthew 24 and back in Matthew chapter 25 give us the indication that what Jesus is teaching is, look, I'm going to be gone for a while. And while I'm gone, I am entrusting, listen, the multiplication of my kingdom to you. I am entrusting the multiplication of my kingdom to you. In other words, we are stewards of Jesus Christ. We might say it this way. He has entrusted us with the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You and I have a stewardship. And if we are to be good servants of Jesus Christ, we will in fact recognize that we are stewards. That we've been given an entrustment, a responsibility I mean, we can see this in small ways. Listen, if you're married today, you have a stewardship. Men, you have a stewardship over your family. You've been given an entrustment. This is not not something that you have taken for yourself. This is an entrustment by God. God has entrusted one of his daughters to you. He has entrusted uh, children to you. You're a dad, you have a stewardship. You're a mom, you have a stewardship. A charge has been given and you are supposed to take care of what has been given. Well, how do you say? How can I be a good steward? How can I be a good steward? Well, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, the primary issue is one of faithfulness. 
You see, one of the great things about that parable, especially back in Matthew 24, is that, that Jesus doesn't say that, that he wants you to somehow be, quote-unquote, successful. What he's looking for is faithfulness. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we learn what is the primary issue of faithfulness for Timothy. The primary issue of stewardship is this. If you put these things before the brothers, you do well. Timothy, if you unashamedly lay these things before the brothers, if you unashamedly lay these things before the church, you are doing well. You are being a good steward. You have been entrusted with the truth. That's our greatest entrustment as a church. That's our greatest entrustment as, a chil- as children, isn't it, of, of God. We've been given the truth. And that truth has been given to us so that we might, in such a way, use the truth to multiply the kingdom of God in this world. A good servant of Jesus Christ understands something. You come in here today not as your own person, not as your, I'm just an individual. I do what I want. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. No, you've been bought with a price, brothers and sisters. You and I have been bought with a price. We are stewards of Jesus Christ. We don't get to do what we want, <laughs> right? We don't get our own way. We get to serve Jesus if you want to be a good servant this, in this, these days, you've got to recognize that you're a steward. We're all stewards in, in very many uh, various ways and then specifically together as the church, we are stewards of the truth. Not only is a good servant a steward of Jesus Christ, but a good servant, secondly, is sustained by the word of God. Now, I just want you to see this here in the, in the scriptures. I want you to take it right from the Bible. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 again, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained, here's the word, being trained, that's where I get this idea of being sustained, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. In our ESV, we have being trained. The, the word is a unique word. It's one that I hadn't encountered before. It's a word that has the idea of being brought up by something. It actually has the idea of being nourished. Paul's going to talk a lot about issues of diet and exercise in this passage. And here's what he's telling us. The diet of the good servant of Jesus Christ is a diet that is made up of you are nourished by the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He is calling us to be filled up with the words of the faith. The words of the faith. The words delivered to us by God through the prophets and the apostles. The words of the faith, or specifically, the words of the good doctrine, the faithful doctrine, the good teaching. You see, what nourishes a good servant of Jesus Christ are words. Words, the words of faith, the words of truth. That's what he's talking about here. And we might ask ourselves a question like I asked myself this week. Well, how can I nourish myself Remember, Peter uses those same words in 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking about the pure milk of the word. How can I nourish myself 
with the word? How can I be filled up with the word? Because remember what Paul says? Let the word of Christ dwell in you, what? Richly. How can I be to the, to filling myself to the, with the word such that I'm overflowing with the word? How is it possible that you would become nourished with the word? Can I ask you a question just this way? Are you nourished or are you malnourished? Are you nourished with the word or would you say, well, you know, Joe, I haven't touched the word all week. Uh, I had not thought about the word all week. I'm coming here and I'm not super hungry. You ever notice how if you go without food for a long time, you're just like, I'm just not hungry anymore. You say, I hadn't touched the word. I hadn't thought about the word. It hasn't been on my mind this week. I haven't engaged in conversation with anybody else throughout the week. You say you're nourished or are you suffering from a bit of spiritual malnutrition? A good servant of Jesus Christ is carefully trained up in, carefully fed by the word of God. What is your spiritual diet plan? How do you plan for spiritual intake to nourish your soul so that you can be built up in the Lord. A good servant is not only a steward of Jesus Christ, but a good servant is sustained by the word. Paul says, Timothy, that's what you'll, you'll be a good servant if you constantly bring these things before the people as you yourself are nourished in the word. We talked to dads for just a minute. Man, this is super important for us, isn't it? Isn't it, dads? We ourselves cannot be providing spiritual nourishment for our families if we ourselves are malnourished in the word. A good servant of Jesus Christ is a steward of, the, of, of Jesus. A good servant of Jesus Christ is sustained by the word. A good servant of Jesus Christ, thirdly, shuns foolishness. Look at this. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. You know what? Let me back up for a second because I, I forgot to, to finish this. I was, I was asking the question. I got off track for a minute. I was asking the question, how can I be sustained by the word? How can I nourish myself by the word? Well, beyond the, the reading and the meditating of the scripture, I think what's indicated here is when he says the good doctrine that you have followed, you know what I think he's referring to? He says, Timothy, you've seen it in me. You've been following my life. One of the things that I have found over my life, over my spiritual life, is that one of the greatest ways for me to be nourished by the faith is to find an older man who is nourished and to follow him. I mean, to do what he does, to talk like he talks. I'm not talking about can kind of things, but listen, one of the things, if you, if you ever ask me, Joe, would you help me to pray? You know what I would say? Meet me at this time and listen to me pray. That's what I, I just want you to listen to me pray, and I want you to do the same thing. Follow godly men. Follow godly women. Yeah, take in the word yourself, and use, but do not neglect the benefit of other godly people. Now, thirdly, he shuns foolishness. He shuns foolishness. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths have nothing to do that is don't be distracted by the trivial speculation of the day now as i studied this i learned that this is something 
whenever Paul talks to a pastor, whenever Paul talks to a group of elders, he's going to come back to this. He says it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 1, Titus 3. Have nothing to do with silly myths. And then he says, old wives' fables. I thought, what in the world is this all about? Have nothing to do with silly myths and old wives' fables. I think what he's saying here is we've got to learn when to argue and when not to argue. There are plenty of silly myths going around today. Things which have no basis in the truth. There's this whole idea, you know, the, of the, the flat earth going around today. Uh, all of these things, people are arguing and, and bickering back and forth. Made up stories. In this case, they were made up stories based on Old Testament genealogies. Maybe from extra biblical books. Arguing error. Things, you know, you always like to hear those kind of cool things, mind twisters and tongue, mind benders and tongue twisters and things like that. He says, have nothing to do with those kinds of things. Foolish stuff today that has no basis in the truth. That is no point in adding to godliness, no point to the glory of God, nothing, no purpose for the word of God. Shun foolish things. Things that are outside of the word, outside of uh, the truth, have nothing to do with silly myths. You hear somebody coming up with their latest Bible code and they're going to tell you, well, you know, if you skip every third letter of the Hebrew alphabet and this and that, and you're going to find out who the next president of the United States is going to be. It's a silly myth, yet the church, there's conferences given to Bible code stuff and and we hear Gospel of Thomas coming out and all of these kinds of silly myths that simply distract you. I'll tell you what a good servant of Jesus Christ is. A good servant of Jesus Christ is riveted on the truth. Silly myths about yourself. Silly myths that you made up in your own mind. Silly myths you made up in your own heart. Isn't that amazing how you make excuses for yourself and reasoning for yourself and justify certain behavior and certain words in your own way? Silly myths, foolishness, old wives' fables, gossips, and slander that you hear out there on the Internet and whatnot. Have nothing to do with it. Shun foolishness. And then a good servant of Jesus Christ Fifthly, or fourthly, strives after godliness. This has really been the point that Paul has had. Rather, he says in verse 7, train yourself for godliness. J. Oswald Sanders said, spiritual ends can only be achieved by spiritual men who employ spiritual methods. That word godliness, or uh, uh, train, and then he says in verse 8, bodily training bodily exercise. He's talking here about the word, he's using the word gymnasium, and what he's doing here is he's referring to, the word from which we get our word gymnasium, he's referring to rigorous training. He's referring now to the discipline of an athlete which demands devotion and discipline. It is a present tense, so it refers to constantly, continually training for godliness. 
Rather, instead of pursuing foolish myths and old wives' fables, what you give yourself to is a discipline toward godliness, a devotion toward godliness. What is godliness? Godliness, most simply, is living as if God exists. It is what the psalmist said in Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me. It is having the Lord as the center of your life. So we might ask, how do I train for godliness? I mean, you might know how you train for a race. You might know how you train to, to lift weights for a specific game or whatever it might be. But how do we train for godliness? Let me drill down on this a little bit more. Training for godliness requires an effort to produce more godliness in your life. You are training. If you're training in weightlifting, you're trying to produce more muscles, right? If you're training for running, you're trying to produce a better time. This is here talking about more and more living as if God exists. More and more godliness. Exercise yourself in such a way so as to produce more and more godliness. Exercise ourselves in the scriptures. We are to understand that this takes work. It requires rigorous effort. It requires discipline. You're going to have to learn. In other words, you're going to have to learn to say no to things. If you're going to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to learn to say no to things legitimate things, even good things. I mean, think about those people who train themselves for athletics. They say no to to things. They say no to even good things. We're going to have to learn that. You're going to have to learn to lay things aside in order to pursue godliness. I mean, in this exercise toward godliness, he's saying lay aside foolishness, lay aside old wives' fables, And drill down on, pursue the truth. Practically speaking, there are some things that have to be laid aside. You may have to lay aside sleep. You may have to sacrifice sleep. You may have to sacrifice and submit leisure. You may have to take your hands off of some of your thought-out freedom in terms of, I can do whatever I want to do. And somebody's going to say, Joe, it sounds like you're talking about legalism here. You're talking about being legalistic. I like what one man said. He said, discipline sounds so much like legalism, but such thinking is mistaken. Legalism is self-centered, but discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and I want to please him. Think about this for a moment, friends. Could you imagine someone claiming that I'm just a little too strict that I'm a legalist because I want to spend time with my wife. You call me up and say, hey, Joe, I want to do this, go here, do that. And I say, I'm sorry, I'm spending time with my wife. And you say, legalist. (laughs) So much so that that I I, I say no to other things, probably not as much as my wife would like me to say no, but I say no to other things and other people. I, I organize my life around her. My relationship to, to Joni affects the way I spend money and affects where I spend money and where I go and where I spend time. It affects how I dress. I come out in the mornings and she goes, where do those pants fit in? And I say, okay, I'll go back to the drawing board again. My, 
My relationship to Joni affects my schedule. Listen, I often go to bed and get up on the basis of my relationship with her. I don't hear anyone saying, Joe, you're just a legalist. Why? Because you know it's not about legalism. It's about what? Love. Please do not think that because you live a rigorous, disciplined life pursuing godliness, that that makes you a legalist. It doesn't. It makes you in love with Christ. And so I say to you, a good servant of Jesus Christ strives after godliness. It's not just going to happen. That is, you need to learn to add things to your life and thinking that will produce more godliness. Listen, I know and you know it doesn't take place all at once. Please don't think it does. But learn to exercise things which are virtuous and exercise things which are honest and fill your life with integrity, giving yourself up to the rigorous effort required to multiply spiritual fruitfulness in your life. And sometimes you lay aside good things because you have a better thing. Listen, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. And then he uses the illustration, bodily exercise profits little. That's the King James Version. That used to be my life verse, right? Ah, bodily exercise only profits little. But, it, but I think ESV gets the, the more of the, 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 the point here. For while bodily training is of some value, you'll get some value out of it, but not lasting value. You're not going to take your physique with you to glory. Praise the Lord. <laughs> You're not taking the big guns with you to glory. The only, it it, it benefits for a little while, but I'll tell you, godliness is a benefit right now and on into the future. Godliness is the only thing that you'll take with you. It has promise in this life and in the next life. It gives blessings now And then, and a good servant of Jesus Christ strives after godliness. And just make it your decision. You know what? I am going to become a holy man. I'm going to become a holy woman. By God's grace, I am going after holiness. And listen, it doesn't come all at once. Please don't. Many people have have frustrated themselves thinking they're going to go from zero to hero overnight. I'm not talking about that, but it's this long, prolonged battling, longing for after holiness. I want to become more and more like Christ. You see, a a good servant of Jesus Christ is a steward of Jesus Christ, is sustained by the word. A good servant shuns foolishness and strives after godliness. But fifthly, a good servant sets his or her hope on the living God. I love how Paul continues with this idea of of exercising for godliness when he says in verse 9, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of of full acceptance. In other words, you you need to give your thought to this. You need to consider this. This is what you need to accept. I'm telling you godliness is not only beneficial now, but is beneficial later. This is worthy of all acceptance. And then he ties it together. That's why he says we toil and strive. That's why we labor, we work ourselves to the bone. We labor to the point of exhaustion. That's why, why? Because we've set our hope 
on the living God. If we're to understand this passage, we have to understand what is connect, that is connected with the previous passage. In other words, this is the end goal of training ourselves in godliness. It is continuing the thought of the previous point. What motivates you to pursue godliness? The fact that you've hoped in God. That you've put all your eggs in one basket. That you've invested completely and fully in Him. He doesn't say that we strive after godliness because we want to hope in God, but because we've already set our hope in the living God. He's the one, in other words, He's the living God. He's the one who has impact in our life right now and on into eternity. We pursue God. We pursue godliness because we hope in Him. And what, do we mean? what does He mean when He says we hope in Him? He says we hope in Him who is the Savior of all men. But then He uses this, this grammar to bring it in. He says, especially those who believe. He's not teaching universalism as if everyone will be saved. He's telling us that the only people who enjoy salvation are those who are in Christ through faith. You see, that's the reality, friends. You you hope in God when you rest in him as your only hope, as your only merit. Not because we think we'll we'll be saved by doing this, not because of anything else, but we, we do this because we are saved. This is what makes for a good servant of Jesus Christ. And this is said, as I told you, to the to the leader, to the ones who are to lead the church. But what I love about this passage is that Paul's not just saying this for his health, he's not just saying this for Timothy. He's saying for the benefit of the whole church. In other words, He says, Timothy, I want you to exemplify this so everyone else sees what a good servant is like and that they can follow that as well. I told you that uh, it, it has been a tremendous privilege over these years to serve the Lord together here because there have been so many men and women I look back on and I just admire and I appreciate and I am continually encouraged by your example in so many of these these ways. Praise the Lord. But I wonder, could we take time this morning just to consider how we might apply this message specifically, both individually and corporately? Praise the Lord that, that, that there is a, 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 an atmosphere in which there are good servants of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. But how could we become better? <laughs> how can we grow to become a more faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So we recognize the things that God has entrusted to us. So we recognize that the only thing that can sustain us is the word. I'm thinking about, you know, John said earlier, today's Father's Day, and we're so thankful for the men that God has given us here. Men, how could we be more faithful stewards, servants of Jesus Christ? I mean, there's a certain element that we recognize that we've been given a tremendous responsibility, a tremendous entrustment in the Lord. Could it be that we say, you know what, there have been, I, I've been sustaining myself on so many lesser things in life. I've not been giving myself to the word, been listening to all kinds of other things, looking at all kinds of other things, but my, my life is not really, I can't say that I am living because God speaks. 
You know, like, like man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of the mouth of God. Is there a way where you've been following foolishness, gossip, slander, silly, irreverent, ir- irrelevant and irreverent myths, maybe making up something of your own? And have you been striving after godliness? Is, is that your goal in life? You, you work out spiritually? Could you say, my hope is set on God who is my Savior in the sense that Everything that, I, no matter what you do to me and what circumstances you put in me, my only hope is laid on Christ and Christ alone. Oh, that God would raise us up as servants, not just any servant, but good servant, so that in the final day, when we see our Lord, we hear those words Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray together.